Welcome to the Dashboard Hunting Mentor Series brought to you by the Western Huntsman Podcast. This series is for the new hunter, young and old, for those who seek to learn the foundations of this ancient yet relevant human pastime. It's not a hobby, it's a lifestyle. Our future depends on you and the choices you make. Now, bring on the adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Dashboard Hunting Mentor Series brought to you by the Western Huntsman Podcast. I'm Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Tan Studio right here in Clark Fork, Idaho. Um, <laughs> right. So guys, uh, this is kind of like episode number two in the Dashboard Hunting Mentor Series. Uh, and we're going to talk about woodsmanship in this episode. So last year we kind of introed this series and talked about all the things that you need to know kind of after Hunter's Ed. And this is going to be the next series, or I'm sorry, next episode in this series. Uh, and it's going to be based around woodsmanship because I think a lot of hunters go out into the woods and they don't have a solid grasp on woodsmanship. And woodsmanship will do a few things for you. A, it'll make you a better hunter. Uh, being a good woodsman um, is is not that complicated, but it will make you a much better hunter. Two, it could save your life. It's uh, really important to know some basic woodsmanship skills and understand some of the dangers. And a lot of this is going to be directed at uh, mountain hunting. So mainly, you know, your western hunting. Uh, some of you folks back east that do, you know, some of those mountain ranges. Um, Back east, uh, you, you know, uh, it's going to be pertinent to you as well. So we're going to be mainly talking about mountain hunting. And, and I, I do this because mountain hunting is where woodsmanship really comes into play uh, because you're usually going to be a lot more remote and, and far removed, whether you're hunting alone or maybe you have a hunting partner. Um, you, you really want to know some basic woodsmanship skills. So uh, before we kick off into that, um, I received an e well I, I received a bunch of emails from the last time since we did the this series episode and I want to like kind of pick one of those out and answer the question that uh, was sent in to me and so if you guys listening if you have questions uh, as a brand new hunter that you want me to answer send me the emails at jim at the western and I will do my best to kind of shuffle through those and answer, you know, one, two, maybe three, depends on how many we get, and I'll go through and answer those questions. So this answer, or I'm sorry, this question comes from Brandon H., who is in Arizona, sunny Arizona, I might add. <laughs> I believe he is 14, and he asked me what my favorite camo is. So Brandon, um, let me talk to you a little bit about, uh, I'm going to answer this a couple of different ways for you because I am you're talking to somebody who is not a big-time gear junkie um, and and I, I want to say this about hunting hunting you know as a lifestyle kind of has a lot of branches of like sub hobbies um, that that, that kind of you know branch out of out of the the overall lifestyle you know some people they're they're hunters and they're way into like sport shooting like I know a lot of bird hunters that are way into going to like a trap shoot, um, sporting clays, uh, those kind of things. And that's kind of a sub hobby. There's there's other hunters 
that do like competition long range shooting or bow archery shooting, uh, comp, you know, competitive stuff. The point is, is a lot of this stuff is just kind of branches out of hunting and it's a good way to kind of stay within that. Well, one of the subcategories is, um, and I know, I know people like this, they're way into the gear. They're way into the gear aspect of hunting and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it if you have the money to do it. And so my point with this is, for for me, I am not one of those people. I am not way into the gear. I don't I don't feel this. Um, I, I don't have this desire or satisfaction out of buying new gear and and uh, always adding to it or replacing it when it's not really necessary. Uh, it's not right or wrong. Again, if you have the money, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But for me, uh, I'm not way into gear, so I want I want to make that very clear up front. However, that said. Uh, my, you asked me what my favorite camo is. Um, that would be Scree Gear. I and I they they sponsor this show. Um, and Scree Gear is a great uh, camo pattern. It's it's a great company that just does a lot of really good things in terms of the the gear that they provide without you know you having to spend a fortune. Um, but let me add a few things to this because I, I think that it's it's really important. If if you're 14 and I'm not sure if you've been out hunting yet or if this is going to be your first season or what what your situation is. But I will tell you, um, worry less about the kind of camo that you're going to wear your first season and worry more about spending time in the woods and spending time with a tag and a rifle or a bow. Um, get out there and, and hunt and, and you can, I mean, you can be successful. I've proven it. <laughs> you can totally be successful running down to Walmart and getting some of their, what I, I, I don't remember what they sell. It's like the mossy oak or, or real tree or something like that. Um, really inexpensive. It's, it's usually like a cotton type kind of camo or whatever. Um, you can totally be successful with that. So uh, you can also, uh, I'll tell you what, the first several deer that I killed, uh, I was wearing jeans and a t-shirt and like my, my tennis shoes or, or sometimes I, I, I know I, I shot one with a, I, I was wearing a pair of cowboy boots, <laughs> which is what I wear a lot. Right. Um, especially living where I live. And so it's, it's not like a prerequisite to success to go out and drop a fortune on gear. What I recommend people, because I get this question a lot, I get the gear question a lot, and what I recommend to people that are brand new to hunting, and it's the same thing with like fly fishing or or just fishing in general. Before you go drop a bunch of money on gear and, and equipment and camo and all this stuff, get the basics that will get you out in the woods and make sure that hunting is your thing. And I'll give you, I'll give, I'll give you a great example. Uh, when I first started fly fishing, I, um, I, I didn't have a lot of money. I, you know, it was, it was a struggle for me to spend like 60 bucks on this combo package that gave me like a six weight fly rod with some generic reel. And it came with a line and a few, you know, random flies or whatever. And that's how I learned to fly fish. I went out and I used that and I learned what flies to use and how to how to put those flies and present them in front of the fish and and locate fish and and learn everything I could about rivers and bends and eddies and you know just all the things that are kind of involved in the in the whole fly fishing world. Well, you can imagine once I started learning how to catch fish, uh, I, I I still didn't have 
a ton of money. But I was out there, and I, I bought a pair of waders from Costco, and they were 40 bucks. In fact, I'll bet you, I'll bet you money in my storage unit. I still have those dang things. <laughs> this was uh, this was almost two decades ago, too. By the way, uh, I spent like 40 bucks on this pair of waders and 60 bucks on the fly fishing rod combo, and then some various, you know, I don't know, another 20, 30 bucks on some flies that uh, I, I I got some advice from the fly shop who gave me, you know, an idea of what to use on what rivers. And I used the I used the heck out of that stuff. I went up there and I was catching fish after fish. Once I learned how to do it, it took a while. You know, it, it's it's uh, just like any type of fishing. Um, there is there's kind of an art form to it and especially with fly fishing. And so it took me a while, but I figured it out. I started catching fish and what I found was I would be up on this particular river and it was a great river to fish, by the way. Um, and and I, I would be, I'd be landing trout. I'd be catching fish. And the person, some somebody would show up next to me, and they had like their $2,500 waders on, and they had their $1,500 fly rod and $500 reel, and they had all this other gear that they really didn't use, but they were just totally decked out, probably $5,000 worth of stuff standing on the river, watching me catch fish after fish while they stood there in frustration wondering why they weren't catching fish. And the moral to that story is, you, the gear is not going to be what makes you successful. And, and I think that's really important because within hunting, there's so much marketing out there. There's so much information about you know oh well and and some of these shows where where people will say oh well I couldn't have, I couldn't have done this without this particular piece of gear and whatnot a lot of that is just rubbish and it's it's just a marketing thing to 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 get this stuff out there and don't get me wrong I really like I to, the point am I'm I'm at in my life now I have a lot of really high end nice gear uh, I have a very nice fly rod I have the the high end waders. Um, you know, all that stuff where, uh, it, 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 and it does help. It helps keep you in the, in the field longer or on the river longer, or, um, it can, it can just last longer because it's good gear, you know, whatever that case is. Anyway, I'm not, that's not the point. The point is, you know, think back this, this, this kid in his early twenties, you know, out there nailing fish all over the place on the river with less than $200 worth of gear. And I'm smoking the folks that were out there with $5,000 worth of gear. They weren't catching anything. Like, I, it's not like they weren't, they, they were just kind of, you know, not catching as many. Like, they weren't catching anything. And you know why I was beating them? It's because I didn't spend a bunch of money on gear. Instead, I focused on how to catch fish in a river. And I focused on what fish eat. It's the most natural way for them to feed, right? So that's, that's why fly fishing is, is effective. It's their, it's their most natural way. And that's all you're doing is presenting the most natural, you know, lure or bait source in a fly and, and attracting these fish to the end of your line. And that's what I focused on, how to do that part. And that's what you need to translate into hunting because hunting is similar in an aspect of fly fishing on a sense that it's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of different things that can go right and can go wrong. Um, but what what makes or breaks you is the experience and the time in the woods and understanding what you're pursuing. 
And so I, I'm, I apologize for the long answer, but that it's really important to me, Brandon, that you focus on, let's say you, your first hunt is going to be a deer hunt. It's really important that you focus on what deer eat, where they bed down, how they move in a 24-hour span. You know, where are they in the morning versus midday versus evening versus the middle of the night? What do they like to do? Where do they like to hide? Where do they get the shade? Where do they get the uh, everything that they need in a deer's environment? We're going to talk about some of this stuff in a later episode, by the way. But for now, uh, that is what is critical. And you can probably go into like your bedroom or whatever and find a lot of stuff that will do the job. You can go to an Army-Navy surplus and get some cheap camo if you want, or Walmart, or, you know, whatever, where you're not spending a bunch of money on that because you really want to, and, and I think this is what I why I was getting at uh, using the fly fishing kind of analogy there, is there's a lot of fly fishermen that go out and spend a lot of gear, and there's a lot of hunters that go out and spend a lot of gear before they actually do it, and then they find out that, you know, it's really not their thing. Now they have all this expensive gear that they'll never get that money fully back from, right? And so you want to make sure that you are passionate about it. Make sure that it is a thing that you want to commit to before you spend a bunch of money. Once you get to that point, however, good gear, good camo, because your your question was specific to camo, will will help aid you not so much in the in the camouflage and the and the hiding aspect of it. It helps because it's it's higher-end technical gear designed for the mountains, okay? It's going to keep you drier. It's going to keep your scents down better with like a merino wool underlayer. You're going to be able to layer your systems. So, you know, like I just, I, I've been spending a lot of time bear hunting. It's spring bear. So in the morning, it's really cold. It's, it, it's, it's cold enough that uh, it's uncomfortable out there without the right layers on. But by lunchtime, I'm able to take some of those layers off and put them in my pack and and uh, and cool off, and then by evening again, because it's spring, it's been spring, it starts cooling off again quite a bit, uh, and so I start putting those layers back on, right? And so that's kind of the point. Um, good rain gear, uh, good camo, and and all that stuff I get it from Scree, Scree Gear, uh, ScreeGear.com. I have an ad in this episode that will give you like a promo code and all that kind of stuff if if anybody's interested in that. But that's my go-to camo. But again. It took me a long time to get to that point where I, I feel like when you're when you're a brand new hunter, worry much less about looking cool with good camo, okay? Because it does look cool, right? <laughs> we all we all want to look cool, but that is what is least important when it comes to notching a tag because you're gonna look cooler taking a picture with a with a dead buck than you will just taking a picture on the mountain with some cool camo on, because that's what'll happen. That's how it works every time. And that's what you want to focus on. Okay. Hopefully that answers that, guys. Uh, again, if you have any other questions, you guys listening, uh, especially I, I really like hearing from the youth hunters. So uh, especially if you guys have any questions, uh, definitely send me an email. Again, that is jim at thewesternhuntsman.com. That is my email address. Okay, woodsmanship. So what is woodsmanship? Let's talk about what woodsmanship is. Woodsmanship is like this big thing of um, moving parts. Kind of like what I was talking about a little bit earlier. There's a lot of things that go into woodsmanship. And there's a lot of misconceptions about woodsmanship is. But there's I I say that 
there's about there's there's like ten things that you really need to know about woodsmanship so that you can go into the woods prepared uh, with the right kind of knowledge that will help you be successful and keep you safe and keep you alive. Navigation is one. Mountain thermals is another. Uh, knowing some basic th- first aid that is a woodsmanship skill. How to build a fire. Knowing what to pack in your pack, uh, whether you're you know day hunting or you're going into the backcountry like an emergency kit. Uh, knowing plant identification, knowing how to build a shelter in case of an emergency, basic foraging skills, and knowing how and where to set up a camp. With if you, let's say you're in the backcountry or or whatever, uh, and understanding animals. Those in my mind, those ten things are what hunters need to know in terms of woodsmanship. And I'm going to kind of go through them in a little bit more detail because a lot of these things you're not going to just learn on on this podcast, right? But this is going to give you some direction. Like I can't teach you first aid on this podcast, but there are a lot of resources out there to learn some basic first aid. And I'm going to cover some of that. So let's talk about navigation. Um, navigation is is what, what's critical about navigation is you have to understand how to read a mountain, and I'm not talking about. I don't want to. I don't even want to talk about like having an Onyx or a GPS system out there with you. Let's let's leave that out for a minute because I think that you should understand some basic principles about navigation before going, uh, you know, out in, in the woods. Because let's face it, navigation systems like GPSs and your Onyx and your base maps and all those things, those are fantastic tools to have, and I recommend everybody have them, but they can fail. They can fail. You can the battery can die on your phone. You could your phone can fall out of your pocket, you know, and you lose it. Uh, what are you gonna do then? Um, my cousin Andrew was out one time and he was kind of depending on Onyx to get him back to the truck. Um, and the phone it was raining really bad and his phone got really wet and kind of shut itself off and he couldn't see the screen and all the he had all sorts of problems with it. So that's why I say this. Navigation is is real basic stuff in terms of understanding. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Sorry, I got off track there. Um, there's tons of like YouTube channels uh, for you youth hunters. Make sure you have your parents, uh, you know, permission or whatever. Uh, but there's tons of YouTube videos out there on on how to read a map, how to read topographical maps, and how to identify things that will help you in navigation. So there's a couple things that um, I want to talk about in terms of navigation to help you guys. Navigation, land, like land nav or um, getting your bearing on a mountain, this that I think is what is critical. Understanding direction, understanding how to read a compass. Uh, compasses are really easy to use. Again, jump on YouTube and find a how to read a compass video, and it'll it'll make sense. It's they're super easy. They're super easy. And once you know, once you know how to basically read a compass, uh, and you carry just a cheap little compass in your pack. It, it, it could save your life. So getting your bearing on a mountain. What I always do when I like park at a trail, let's say I park at a trailhead, or I've just parked somewhere random where I'm going to I'm gonna walk in and try to find some elk or some deer or something. I always kind of look around. And I don't mean just around, you know, my direct perimeter that, that's really close. I look at the horizon. I want to see, okay, that mountain has this little peak that has some cliffs at the top of it with some scree rock on the bottom or something along those lines, right? When I'm standing at my truck, it is directly northeast of me. Or 
it gives me a bearing so when I'm way up further on the mountain, I can still see that cliff face. It's going to tell me where I am in relation to my truck. This is called a landmark. We're going to use landmarks to help us navigate. A landmark could be a really goofy looking tree. It could be a copse of trees, like a group of trees that, that looks unique, that is identifiable uh, amongst other trees. Um, in, in There's a spot in Utah, uh, it's right below this place called DeFay's Ranch. Or, I'm sorry, it's, a, it's above DeFay's Ranch. And when you look up there, it's uh, there's like a bunch of pine trees up there, right? But then in the middle of all these evergreen trees, there is this heart-shaped section of, I believe they're quaking aspens. And so it's kind of cool. Like in the summertime, you could you could see it. You can make it out because the, 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 the green on those leaves is different than like an evergreen, dark green uh, pine tree. But in the fall, when those when those trees change, when those colors change, holy smokes, you could really tell. And it's in the, like a perfect shape of a heart. That, that could be a landmark. Find things like that that could be a landmark. Other things are rock croppings, ravines, rivers, canyons, all those things that you use to kind of get your bearing. When you leave your truck and you start hiking into those areas, <clears throat> excuse me, you want to pay attention to that kind of stuff. You know, the river direction, the river or a stream or a creek is, is going to be flowing is going to tell you a lot about your direction. You'll know if you hit that creek again up higher that it's flowing this way and obviously it's not going to change direction in terms of which way it's going to flow. So as you're walking down the mountain, you know where that's going to take you. These are all things, and again, guys, this is just super foundational, very, very basic, because I, the, the point of this is on each of these 10 topics, I want you to go in and research further on your own. You know, you can find a lot of this information just on the Internet. But with land navigation, I, I really want you to focus on learning how to use landmarks. So if you're, let's say you're a youth hunter and you're, you're riding around with your parents somewhere, Learn how to use, even if you're in a city, learn how to use identifiable landmarks. Let's say you're in a city. Okay, there's that. That building is a really light shade of brown, and it's a little different than the other buildings. Now, as you're going through the city, always pay attention to where that building is. Maybe you're coming in from the south side, and then you end up on the east side of it. And But you can still identify it, and it'll give you some bearing as to what part of town you're in, right? Same thing if you're out, out in, in the country or up in a, up in a mountain. Find a landmark and practice using those landmarks as identifiable features so that you don't get lost because they, they, it could save your life. Those landmarks will tell you a lot as to the relation of where you left versus where you're at, especially if you have a compass because that you, you could bounce that direction off of your location. Again, I feel like I'm getting too much into this without, uh, it's more of a visual learning thing, and, and this is just an audio podcast. So keep your bearing, learn how to keep your bearing, learn how to read a compass, learn how to identify landmarks, and use, when you when you are, let's say you're, a lot of times, well, I'll put it to you this way, like I'm in North Idaho, and when I go into a new area, and uh, a few years back, I, I shot this buck kind of in an area I'd never really been in before, and it was real thick in there. And when you get into those real thick woods, there's not a lot of landmarks you can identify because it all looks the same, right? You're just kind of surrounded by trees. There's no horizon to view. Uh, maybe you're just in some dark timber. 
learn how to make a natural kind of landmarks that you can use to get back. So as I'm walking where uh, where I got this buck, and when I'm walking the first loadout, I need to know how to get back to it without getting lost, right? So I get I as I start making my first trip back to the truck with my first load, I'm making things. I am I am breaking branches, little little twigs, you know, branches or whatever on the tree, not completely off. I'm breaking them so that they're hanging down. So most of your branches they come straight out from the tree, right? They're they're kind of on this um, th- this horizontal line. And I'm snapping it in half so that half of it is vertical up and down. I'm going to easily be able to identify that outside of all the other branches. Uh, sometimes you can stack some rocks or stack some twigs. Or if there is uh, like those, gosh, I'm, I'm totally going to forget the name of those little flowers that I, I used in Spring Bear. Um I'd have to ask my wife. <laughs> she knows all the flower names. and uh, but, but there's this one particular purple flower. And I'm just, you know, having a brain fart on it. But uh, it's it's the kind of flower that pops up that, that tells you that the morel mushrooms are also going to be popping up at about the same time. You could take like four of those and either, either kind of pinch them into the bark on a tree so that it's at eye level so you'll see them on your way back. Or, you know, stack them up in like a trail area. The point is, is about every 10 feet, I'm making these little landmark things to get me back to the truck. And then when, once I'm at the truck, I, I drop that load off and I head back to the deer to get the rest of it, right? And so now I've got this perfectly good little trail that I made. Uh, it's all natural stuff. I'm not leaving ribbons out in the trees. I'm not, because you could do that as well. But the problem with that is nobody ever takes them back. And so you've got all these ribbons randomly tied, to, you know, fluorescent orange or whatever, tied in trees. Uh, and, and they're there for years. And so I, I try to not do that. Um, hopefully that helps. Okay. So we, we've covered some, some of that basic stuff. And again, guys, go on and learn some more of the advanced stuff because uh, this uh, very basic and all audio, no visual. I wish I could make a video to kind of teach you how to do this. But um, the other aspect to navigation is go- going to be what I talked about earlier with your GPS and your, your Onyx apps. Like Onyx is great because once I get out of my truck and I gear, gear up, ready to go, I hit the little tracker button and it tracks me. And I can I know exactly where I'm at as long as my system is functioning. I always put my phone on airplane mode because the battery will last a lot longer uh, when you're on airplane mode. And I allow that thing to track my route the entire way in. That way I've got a visible trail on my phone that will get me back to the truck. Okay, it's going to give me directions. It's going to give me contour lines so I know if I'm about to walk into something really steep or dark timberish. Um, I'm not going to get lost when I'm using that. But that said, keep in mind what I said earlier. Technology can fail and there could be a problem. So just <clears throat> having the basic understanding of, uh, of, of your navigation before going out is going to be super, super critical. All right, let's go into mountain thermals. Mountain thermals are something that I didn't know about for a long time as a young um hunter and a young adult actually I, I nobody taught me what thermals were and so thermals i i think that if you don't if if you've been hunting for you know 10 years and you've never gotten anything most likely you don't know what thermals are and if you're listening to this and that's your situation and when i say mountain thermals you don't know what i'm talking about uh that that is going to play right into your success ratio because that is really what changed 
my hunting trajectory in terms of when I started more consistently notching tags versus coming out in empty-handed and having a big bowl of tag soup at the end of the season, right? So mountain thermals. Mountain thermals are slight winds. Okay, that's that's the easiest way to put them. They are they are movements of air that take your scent either up or down. I want you to think of it this way. When you start boiling water on a stove, remember have you you, you guys have seen that and all that steam coming up and you've heard the term hot air rises and heat rises. And you've also heard the saying that what goes up must come down. That's kind of all the things you need to know when it comes to mountain thermals. It's very easy to understand thermals. So what happens is um, warmer air is going to rise, colder air is going to go down. So at nighttime, what do you think the air is doing? It's going down. It's going down the mountain. Now... Just because the sun is out and you can feel a little heat from it, especially on those cold fall days, does not mean that that air has suddenly shifted and gone up. Because what it, this, this is where we get super scientific. It's, that's not what's taking place. What's happening is the sun is heating the ground. And the ground getting warm is what makes the air shift to an upwards thermal. So in the morning, your thermals are going to go down. And generally speaking, this is, this is again, super general uh, in terms of, like, whatever region you're hunting in. Uh, you know, Arizona is going to be different than Montana, uh, you know, time-wise. But where I hunt, generally speaking, the thermals are going to be going down until about 9 o'clock in the morning. At about 9 o'clock in the morning, you're going to have, like, a... 15 to 30 minute time frame where you're going to get some swirling thermals where you could feel them going up and down because they're, they're shifting. The ground is heating, right? And at, a, at about that 930 time, those thermals start going up the mountain. It's pretty predictable. And then in the evening, as the shadows start hitting, and because that time changes so often, I don't really have a time to give you, but you'll know what I'm talking about. The sun starts sinking low in the western sky. And, and they're starting to cast shadows all over, and you can feel the temperatures dropping a little bit. Well, what do you think is happening? The ground is losing its heat. So those thermals, again, you're going to have a, like a 15 to 30-minute uh, time frame where you're going to have some swirling winds, swirling thermals, and then they're going to shift consistently to down. So like you folks in the Midwest, on a very macro, large scale... You get those prevailing winds. When you're hunting whitetail, you're always paying attention to the, the, the prevailing winds, and that's going to many times tell you what deer stand to sit, right? So a prevailing wind, how it has been described to me, is kind of like a macro level, a large-scale level of a mountain thermal in a sense. Because what's happening is somewhere is the ground is heating up more than it is somewhere else. So it's pulling all that air. Okay, so as that heat rises, it's pulling the cooler air to it. This is uh, very similar to how hurricanes are, are started in the ocean. But that air, like this lake we used to hang out on, every day at like 3 o'clock, every day, we'd get this crazy wind for like two hours. And and what what was going on is the air over the water was cooler than the sandstone rocks 
on the banks. So those rocks were heating up and lifting that air straight up into the air. And what was happening is it was pulling that cooler air in to replace the hot air. Does that make sense? It becomes like a vacuum. So thermals are no different. Mountain thermals are, are no different other than what happens on a mountain mountain thermal is you are going to have things like, um, you know, ravines, uh, drainages, cricks, uh, these these kind of crevices in the mountain that could switch it. So like you could be on one, you could be on a ridge and the thermals are going up and you drop to mid slope and all of a sudden because of the shade, the sun has not heated the air or I'm sorry, the ground at that point. And so the thermals are still going down. So, so again, you, 930 on a ridge, those thermals are consistently going up. You think you're good to go, but you get mid-slope, and it's still you know, 945, 930 in the morning. Man, all of a sudden, those thermals will change, and they'll go down. And, and you can have also nice, consistent upward thermals um, you know, midday, and let's say a really dark cloud comes in. And usually that's accompanied by wind, which wind, by the way, will trump thermals. Whatever wind direction the thermals are going is going to, um, or I'm sorry, whatever direction the wind is going is going to take those thermals with it, okay? Uh, so keep that in mind. But a, a dark cloud can shift those thermals temporarily. So the, they're, they're, they're somewhat complicated but easy to understand. If you, if, I, I have an article that I wrote that has a lot of pictures and imagery regarding thermals on the westernhuntsman.com. Click on the articles tab and just kind of scroll through those and you'll find you'll find a, a an article that is about mountain thermals. And it's got pictures and, and like the arrows are, are showing different times of days and how those thermals are reacting. And it's really good because you can actually physically see it. So that's that's a resource for that. Um, so anyways, but, but the, it is critical and, and here's why it's critical guys, when you're listening to this, where, um, I was tracking a herd of elk one time and this was a, an October rifle hunt. This was years ago. I was tracking a herd and in the morning, every morning they'd be down on this private piece of land in an agricultural field. It was like an alfalfa field. They'd be down there and like clockwork as thermal started shifting the elk would move up the mountain and, and they would do it right before the thermal shifted. So they were still using the scent coming downhill because they keep in mind, these animals smell a lot better than you and I do. So as, as the smell, or I'm sorry, as the, the thermals are coming down the mountain early in the morning, they start going up. Why? Because their nose is in the wind. So they smell what's ahead of them. They know what's up on that mountain. So if there's some hunter sitting up there and expecting these elk to, because they, maybe a hunter watched these elk in the field in the morning and thought, man, I'll just get up on that public land and sit up there and wait for them to come up because that's what they've been doing every day. Well, they're going to ruin it because those elk are going to smell them. So what happens is those elk go up, they go up high, and then they bed down and they use the thermals coming up because now the sun has heated the ground enough that those thermals are coming up. Those elk are bedded up down there utilizing those thermals to protect them from what's below them. So nothing can come below them. So what should have that hunter have done or what should have I have done instead of trying to get up there before the elk start heading up the mountain? What should happen is that hunter, uh, I'll just use, I'll, I'll act like it's me. Um, what I should have done is waited for those thermals to shift, wait for those elk to get up there and then use the other side of that mountain to go up to the top and work my way back down to where the elk are bedded high up on the mountain. Does that make sense? I hope I'm making sense with that. <laughs> I kind of said it weird, but 
The point is, is I'm protecting myself from the thermals. So if you're calling in an elk, right, and and uh, you're on a you're on a steep slope and you're let's say you're mid slope and this elk's coming in hot and it's midday, midday madness, and the elk is kind of above you and he's going to try to get straight above you to catch a whiff of you to find out what you are. That's not going to work. That elk is going to smell you. So what you want to do is get on his same level. That way the thermals are not going to mess you up. Same thing with deer hunting. Uh, one of the places where I set a bear baiting barrel um, is is in a terrible place because of wind thermals, or, or I'm sorry, mountain thermals. Where my barrel is, no matter if, if uh, or once that sun starts setting in the evening, which is your best time to sit on a bait barrel, uh, those thermals change, and the way, the way that the the mountain kind of contours and loops down. I'm talking only 40 yards. I didn't realize this, but where I was sitting and set up waiting to, to shoot a bear on that, that barrel, that bait barrel, the wind was pushing it down where I thought it was going away from me, but it was turning because of the contour of the mountain and going right at that barrel. So those bears weren't coming in when I was sitting there. So that's how critical it is. If you're deer hunting, you've really got to pay attention to thermals. These animals use thermals like crazy, and it's a very good woodsmanship to know and understand. Again, jump on the westernhuntsman.com and go to the articles tab and find that thermals um, article, and that'll that'll be a lot more um, intuitive for you. If you're anything like me, you're always looking for ways to improve your elk hunting skills for September. And one of my favorite ways is the Elk Collective. It's an absolute game changer in self-education. This virtual elk hunting course has over 150 videos that cover everything from elk calling, strategy, tips, setup, gear, much, much more. There's a bunch of people involved. Some of the best elk hunters in the woods are involved with the Elk Collective. And they've come together to put together this virtual course to help you notch more tags in September. So check it out at theelkcollective.com and use promo code, all one word, the Western Huntsman, for 20 bucks off the entire course. That makes the course only $69. It's a great deal. And I promise if you go through this course, you will go into the elk woods with a lot more confidence and a much better chance at notching a tag on the mighty Wap. Hoffman Boots is the boot choice of the Western Huntsman podcast, and it has been for a very long time. I love my Hoffman in the Explorers, in the 6-inch or the 8-inch. Uh, they have all sorts of options for you to check out. Hoffman Boots is my go-to boot because I am a firm believer that when it comes to gear, the one piece of gear you don't want to skip on is boots get really good boots and if you choose to do some hoffman boots you're going to find out why i highly recommend these hunting boots made by a multi-generational family of shoemakers these boots are made right here in north idaho and i've got an excellent deal for you if you choose to go with hoffman boots use promo code all caps lock huntsman 10 for 10 percent off get you some of these boots and find out why i love them Uh, They're totally waterproof. They're going to give you great traction on the mountain. They're super comfortable. There's very little break-in period. Can't recommend hopping boots enough. Check it out, guys. 
Next on the list is Scree Gear, high-octane hunting attire without breaking the bank. You want to go into the field with good camo, right? You want you want camo that works, that'll keep you dry, that'll keep you comfortable. You want layering systems, the merino wool, the rain gear, all the things that make hunting a little bit easier and allows you to stay in the field a lot longer. The problem with most of it is it's super expensive, not with Scree Gear. Scree Gear will give you all the high-end technical gear that you want without having to take out a second mortgage, and that's why I like it. And to make it even better, got a promo code, the Western Huntsman, all one word, and that will give you 15% off and free shipping. It's a heck of a deal, guys. I recommend checking out like their bundle packages. They have like the elk bundle or the whitetail bundle or the turkey bundle. All those bundles come with multiple pieces of gear, and you won't regret getting this gear. It's great stuff. Check out Scree at ScreeGear.com. Oh, and you want to call in an elk? Use Phelps Game Calls. I've been using Phelps Game Calls since uh, just about the beginning of Phelps Game Calls. It's a great company story, too. This company started in a little garage and is now one of the premier call companies on uh, within the industry. I mean, you can't you can't go wrong with Phelps Game Calls, whether it's turkey calls, predator calls, waterfowl, or especially I think the bread and butter is the elk calls. And I, I use the Maverick. I use the Pink. I use the Gray Amp. Uh, check out the AMP series. If you're new to calling, I recommend getting a couple of different ones and trying them out. Find out which one works best for you. But uh, I promise you I'm not steering you wrong when it comes to Phelps Game Calls. It's a great company full of great people that make excellent products that actually work. And the proof is in the pudding. Call in a lot of elk, and you will too if you trust me, by going to phelpsgamecalls.com. I got Obviously, I got a promo code for you, right? Huntsman 10. Huntsman 10 for 10% off your Phelps Game Calls and check them out. Phelps Game Calls. Get them close. Two last items. Check out the Reveal Cell Cams from Tacticam. Whether it is for hunting or security, these are excellent cell cams that I have all over my property. To include, I, uh, I put them on some job sites for some security so people I know if, uh, if they're stealing materials or whatever, I'm going to catch them. Uh, and another little promo code I like to throw out there is for Batum907 for anybody that is hunting bears spring or fall and you are allowed to bait. Don't forget to go to Batum907.com. Since made in Alaska, use promo code Huntsman10 for 10% off. The stuff works, and it works well. Let's get back to the show. Here we go. So first aid. First aid is the next one. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on first aid, guys, but um, you, you've got to know... There's a lot of things that can happen on a mountain. You can really cut yourself while gutting out a deer. You can you can drop an arrow uh, that that somehow in, impels you. Uh, your your firearm can do something weird and you maybe shoot yourself in the foot or worse. Uh, there's a lot of different things. You can fall and break an ankle. You can uh, you know all these things that can happen. You want to have some basic first aid items in your pack. I recommend the Jimmy kits from Orion Medical. Uh, you you want to learn how to, again, this is where like YouTube is going to come in handy. You want to learn how to use a tourniquet. This is one of the things that I'm going to kind of freshen up on because I haven't studied this for a long time or, uh, or read up on it. But uh, I want to freshen up on how to use a tourniquet. Uh, tourniquets are, are critical pieces of gear to keep in your pack. Uh, gauze, uh, medical tape, all those things that can kind of stop bleeding. You, you always remember, you're wanting to stop the bleeding, start the breathing, and get some help. Those are the three things. I uh, learned that in EMT school many years ago, <laughs> So, uh, but it's been a long time. So um, check out, uh, I, there's a lot of really good first aid kits out there. Again, I, I like the Orion 
uh, medical kits uh, from my buddy Jimmy Gruen. He was on a show, uh, on this show. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't remember if that was last year or the year before. But he talks about all that, and he put these kits together that are really critical for your emergency first aid. But you guys need to learn how to use some of that stuff and learn some of the myths that get busted. Um, like, you know, using using duct tape or something uh, to, to stop a wound. You know, you, you just want to know what the right thing is versus just kind of winging it um, in, in a pinch. So check out those those first aid kits. You want to have never go into the woods, whether you're going into the backcountry or just for a day, never go out there without a first aid kit. Never. Okay, building a fire. I love this one. Building a fire is super critical, guys. And I can't tell you how many times... I've been with what I thought was a seasoned woodsman who didn't know how to build a fire. This is perhaps the most important tool and little piece of knowledge that you should know. Again, I can't sit here on a podcast and teach you how to build a fire, but there are a ton of resources out there on how to do it. Um, carrying things in your pack, uh, you know, we, we're, we're, kind of going around we've got the first aid we're going to talk about a, like an emergency kit um all this stuff needs to be in your day pack even even if you're just going for the day right um because a lot can happen if you break an ankle and it's going to be 32 degrees outside at night and you can't get out and somebody can't get to you you're going to want to know how to build a fire while you're sitting there in pain with a broken ankle okay that, that's that's kind of what we're talking about here but building a fire is a stepping stone process you don't just grab some logs and try to light them with a lighter, right? No. It's not how it works. You've got to start small with kindling. You've got to start very, very small. Dead grass. Pieces of uh, those those really dead branches that are thinner than, like, the lead in the pencil. That you can, you can, you know how you can pull the lead out? Those kind of things. And then you start adding to it with a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And things that are alive don't burn. Again, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this because it's not the appropriate place to teach somebody how to build a fire. But what I recommend you do is you watch some videos. You learn how to use like a flint and steel because I always keep one of those in my in my pack because you never know when a lighter or matches are going to fail. Um, I keep those in my pack as well, though. I also keep like a little fire starter. Uh, it's like this little, I don't know, you can get it for like pyro putty. Uh, there's a bunch of different ones out there, but they make lighting a fire a lot easier. And I put one in like a sandwich bag inside of my emergency kit so it stays dry and I know it's in there in case of an emergency. But learning how to build a fire is a very critical woodsmanship skill. What I recommend is you find some videos. Again, YouTube is our friend here. And uh, watch some of those fire starting videos and then apply what you learned in person, whether you can go in your backyard or maybe you can go, uh, you know, out in the mountains. Maybe you're going camping on a family camping trip or something, but work on starting fires in random places with just what's around there. Learn how to fire, start a fire with nothing and it'll make it so that when you're prepared with the stuff in your pack, you'll be able to light a fire very easily. Uh, next up, emergency kit. Emergency kit uh, are just going to be things that you keep in your pack in case of an emergency and you're stuck again, like you're stuck out there. Uh, those are going to be things like the fire starter, uh, some lighters. I, I carry two lighters. I carry extra batteries for my headlamp. I carry some matches. I carry, um, my, like I told you, my, my uh, flint, flint and steel. 
gosh, I can't remember. I've got a really cool one. I'd tell you guys, but I don't remember the name of it. <laughs> I'm totally drawing a blank. Um, and I keep one of those emergency blankets. I don't know how great they are. Um, never had to use one, but you know, I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Another thing I always keep in my pack is a, uh, you, you can go to like Walmart and get these for super cheap. It's like a, it's like a five foot by seven foot tarp. Uh, and I do that because the tarp is great for, let's say I've got an elk down and I'm, I'm breaking it down. I'm quartering it out. I could set the rear quarter on this tarp without getting it all dirty because uh, a lot of times I'm, I'm just hunting solo and I can work it into the game bag from there versus when you're alone, you know, you've got nowhere to put it. Uh, it's going to get dirty if you set it on the ground and you got to kind of, you know, wrestle with the game bag to get that rear quarter in there, that kind of thing. But I keep that tarp in there. It's also great for if I do get stuck out there or uh, some crazy thunderstorm comes in, I've got something to make a shelter with. And that is, I have actually used that. Uh, I've been surprised. Keep in mind, when you're in the mountains, especially in the west, you will get surprised sometimes by storms that show up that were not supposed to be there. These wicked thunderstorms that come out of nowhere, they're super windy and they drop a lot of moisture. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But those, that tarp comes in, in, in uh, very handy by just, and it doesn't weigh much. Uh, you'll hear a lot of people talk about weight. You always have to kind of weigh, uh, no pun intended, the advantages versus disadvantages of adding weight to your pack. And one of the things that I find is worth it is that little 5x5 five five or 5x7 five uh, blue tarp that, you know, is just from Walmart. It can work as a blanket, a shelter, uh, to keep meat clean. There's all sorts of uses for it. Um, that's, that's the kind of stuff. Another thing to know, plant identification. There's a lot of really good books on plant identification that can help you if you need to forage for food. Um, it can help you learn what to avoid. Like you don't want to, let's say, oh man, there's a, there's a mule deer down there and I'm, I'm going to get set up and, and, uh, try to shoot him. And, and what do you do? You sit down in a bunch of poison ivy. <laughs> that's that's going to make for a very miserable hunt. So understanding plant identification, again, great resources out there. One of them is my buddy Primal Nate. Uh, he's got a website and a book that talks about a lot of that kind of stuff and help you identify the, the plants, what are edible, what to avoid, uh, those kind of things. Uh, there, there's just tons and tons and tons of information out there. Knowing how to build a shelter, uh, kind of what we talked about, even without a tarp. Remember how I was telling you to go out like wherever, whether it's your backyard or maybe you've got some forest area near your home, uh, some public land, or you're going on a family camping trip or whatever, and you're going to practice building a campfire, multiple campfires. Like you should spend a day building like 10 different campfires in 10 different spots. Okay. Um, I forgot to throw that in there earlier. Another thing you should practice to do is how to build a shelter. Learn how to keep some twine in your pack and know how to make like an A-frame or just a, a one-sided little lean-to uh, out of just some twine and what you find right there in the forest. That could save your life. If you're out there for a few days and you're stuck and, uh, you know, search and rescue can't find you, um, that could be the difference between you making it out cold, hungry, and bruised up versus dead. Really important stuff. Basic foraging, we talked about that. Okay, setting a, up a camp. Setting up a camp is super critical in, in a sense that people have this it in their mind that they're looking for like a flat, open, nice area with a good view, maybe next to a creek. 
So I'm going to tell you uh, that's that's not appropriate. And we're specifically talking about backcountry camping, uh, backcountry hunting, and and finding a camp out there. Um, the biggest thing, the biggest killer of hunters or, or just backpackers in general is setting up your tent in an area that has widowmaker trees. And a widowmaker tree is a, either a dead tree or a tree that has been maybe damaged halfway up with uh, lightning uh, or some other, maybe maybe another tree fell on that and cracked another tree. And the tree that initially fell is now on the ground, but that other one is hard to tell, but it is definitely damaged halfway up. And the slightest breeze or sometimes just random act of God can make that tree snap in half suddenly and fall. So what you're looking for when you're setting up a camp to prevent that from falling on you, again, a lot of hunters get killed this way, is is finding those areas that are free of any kind of widowmaker or damaged tree. They need to be nice, healthy-looking trees. You really got to look at them. Look through the branches. You don't have to climb up them. I'm not telling you to climb up them or anything like that, but look from the ground. Use your binos if you need to. But, but make sure you're identifying whether or not that tree is is a healthy, strong tree, or if it has the potential to break and fall on you in your tent. You want to, if you can, set up away from those trees. Uh, what, what I mean by that is if there's, if there's like a meadow area where you're kind of away from any fallen timber that could potentially come down and be hazardous to you, uh, camp in that spot. Look, look less about what looks like what in your mind is a good camp spot and try to find areas that look like you're protected from uh, potential deadfall, uh, black widow trees. Another another thing to avoid is like if you're in a if you're in a drainage and there is a nice little flat area next to a creek, what happens if you get some wild thunderstorm? Well, they call it a drainage for a reason. That drainage usually has, you know, a fairly sizable creek. When I say sizable, it's still just a little creek, right? Maybe it's only <clears throat> two to five feet across and, and uh, you know, five or six inches deep at most. But when we get some crazy wicked thunderstorm and it's dropping an inch in an hour or something crazy like that, it's a drainage because all the water coming off both sides of that drainage, those mountains, are feeding into that bottom. So if you set up a tent and some storm comes in and drops a, a crazy amount of rain, you're going to be in like a flash flood status because all those little ravines coming down into the bottom of that drainage are draining the water coming down that's not getting absorbed into the mountain, potentially creating a hazardous situation where you get a flash flood kind of scenario. It happens a lot in deserts more so than some of the more northern climates just because uh, like in my mountains, it'll absorb a lot of that water, but it's still something I would watch for. Just setting up a camp in general is going to be a critical thing for you. You just want to watch. Are you in like a flash flood zone? Are you around a bunch of dead or dying trees? Is there a bunch of beetle kill around there? Those kind of things. Avoid them. And last but not least, knowing animals is good woodsmanship. Good woodsmanship, um, you know, being a good hunter just in general, you really need to understand the animals and the species you're after. And I think we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast episode, but uh, this is super critical. Understand the animals that you're you're pursuing. Some of the things that you want to know. What do they eat? You want to know what they're eating. 
you want to know what do they use for shelter? Where do they like to bed during the day versus where do they like to bed maybe at nighttime? Where do they feed? Do they feed high, low, mid-slope, meadows, dark timber? All this changes from black bears to elk, right? Understand all that. Understand basic behavioral things like with elk. Elk generally herd up with other cow elk. And then bulls, bigger, more mature bulls, usually kind of herd up with other bulls. That's called a bachelor group. And they're going to be like that most of the year. So know that. Know that, um, you know, just because there's three cows standing on the side of the hill over there doesn't mean that there's going to be a bull elk with them. Understand, now, obviously, um, you know, without getting too much into detail, obviously, when you're going elk hunting into the, like, September rut or something, that, that all changes. All bets are off. Uh, but you want to understand, like, the cycle. I, I really like listening to Randy Newberg's podcast when it comes to, like, the cycle of, of elk and, and throughout the year. And I'll, I'll just throw this out there for you. But elk are bachelored up through the summer. And then around mid-August to the first part of September, they start going into the, what he calls the pre-rut phase. And that's where they're kind of sizing each other up. They're breaking off. They're no longer in bachelor groups. Then they go into the rut phase. This is where they're breeding with the cows and they're they're protecting their herds and their harems. And they're fighting with other cows, or I'm sorry, other bulls. And then you have the post-rut where they're kind of still in that rut game to an extent in case a, a cow comes into heat. But also they're kind of licking their wounds from the rut. Uh, and then, then you go into like a late season. And this is going get, to get into like halloween on where the bulls start bacheloring back up but they're they're moving to areas away from people away from other cow elk away from everything to just kind of rest and relax anyway that's a real basic breakdown you want to know that kind of stuff and 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 you really want to know it well so that you don't have to think about it when you're in the field you want to you just want to know the animals know what they eat know what they how they breed know when they breed because breeding seasons will make a major impact will play a major role uh, in their behavior uh, during that time of year. So you want to know that. So anyways, guys, that kind of wraps up all of our, uh, our the, the, the woodsmanship discussion that I wanted to have with you. It was kind of fun talking about it. I like talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, if you guys have any other questions that you want to throw in there uh, and, and want me to cover later regarding woodsmanship, woodsmanship is just a basic understanding of your natural environment, just understanding th- your trees, and how they, they play a role in the forest. Uh, how how the animals play a role with what trees and what habitat. And how they... Everything everything is connected in the woods. Just like anything else in life. Everything is connected. Right? A, a car. Your blinker won't work if your battery is disconnected. Okay? So all this is tied together. Same thing. Woodsmanship is just understanding how everything ties together in the woods. And how things function to keep you safe. Because if you don't know anything about the woods and you go camp right underneath a black widow tree and you get a random 30 mile an hour gust of wind, that could kill you. That's all I'm asking. So study up on that. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of resources and a lot of other podcasts out there that talk about woodsmanship and uh, and getting more into detail with that to make you better and more effective in the woods. Best of luck. That wraps this episode up. We will see you next time. Thanks for tuning into the hunting, I'm sorry, the Dashboard Hunting Mentor Series by the Western Huntsman. Have a great one. You made it all the way to the end. 
thank you so much for tuning into the show. We sure appreciate your support. This is Jim Huntsman signing off and reminding you to check us out at Instagram at The Western Huntsman and on Facebook at The Western Huntsman. And you can also check out the website at thewesternhuntsman.com. Thanks again. We'll see you guys next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.